Dear saints, and most especially dear Aiden and Ava and Eduarda and Molly, grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we observe the Feast of Pentecost. <clears throat> We're also receiving a number of members through profession of faith today. And most notably, we're also witnessing four children who will be confirmed in the faith and for the first time in their brief life, receive the very body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So we have a lot to get through today, and I'll take these up in order. First, about Pentecost, and after that, about Confirmation. So I want to begin by pointing out of all the uh, I want to point out all of the great and miraculous things that happened on that first Pentecost, uh, the, the second reading you heard for today from Acts chapter two. There are four miracles that happen. The first is uh, in Acts chapter two, verse two, and it says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So the miracle here is that it doesn't say that there was a wind, but only the sound of wind, like a mighty rushing wind, but nothing was moving or blowing in the air. That's the first miracle, which is astounding. The second miracle is in verse three, right after this, and it says, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, it's not that there was fire on their heads, but that it appeared that way and that their heads were glowing for a moment. Now, we don't know how long it was there for. I'm guessing it was only a brief moment, but that is the second miracle. <clears throat> now, the third miracle, uh, there's a lot more in this, uh, but the third miracle is in verse four. And it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want to clear up two misconceptions here. Uh, the first is that when the text says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, this isn't referring to everyone in the area or the region. This is referring specifically to the 12 apostles. They were the ones who had the, these gifts. We know this because back in chapter 1, verse 13, it names the exact 12 apostles. Judas had already killed himself by then. Uh, Matthias was replaced, um, replaced uh, Judas on, uh, with, the, with the apostles. Uh, the second misconception here is about what it means that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Some have taken this to mean that they are speaking a language that only God and his angels speak. Something like the official language of heaven or something. Uh, today, Pentecostals and Charismatics hold on to this. <clears throat> and they, they uh, in their churches, they start babbling, uttering all kinds of syllables and sounds, maybe even fainting or rolling on the ground. And that is wrong. That is not what happened on Pentecost. And that is not what the gift of speaking in tongues is. The text specifically says other tongues, which means that in addition to the languages that they already knew, they start to speak other languages 
as well. They were speaking actual, intelligible human languages that people could speak and understand. And we know this because later in the text, it says that the multitude of people in Jerusalem later gathered around and heard them speaking the languages that they knew. And they were uh, amazed at this because they said, well, aren't these people from Galilee? How do they know my language that's halfway across the world? Verse 7 says, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? And we know it's actual languages because in verse 9, it lists the languages, the languages that they were speaking. It says, they spoke the languages of the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and the Arabians and the Romans, so on and so forth. And there's a long list. So those 12 apostles began speaking in at least 18 other languages. Now, I want to point out how astonishing this actually is. A number of you here today speak other languages, so it might not be as impressive. In addition to English, you speak Spanish or Portuguese or Italian or Swedish or German, things like this. Others of you can read Greek or Hebrew or Latin and Arabic. And you learn these languages either living in another country or by studying them, learning the grammar and the syntax, the prepositions, the participles, the case, the tense, the aspect, so, so on and so forth. You used uh, flashcards, you used these sort of things. And it's easier for some people than others, but we all learn the languages we know the normal way by memorizing vocab, by writing it down, by listening to it, by trial and error, so on and so forth. The difference here between that and Pentecost is that the apostles didn't. They didn't study. They just knew it in an instant. And I want you to consider how mind-blowing this would have been to the people of Jerusalem. These apostles were from Galilee. They spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, and some Greek, and that's about it. Even more, there were no textbooks. There were no language courses. There was no internet or videos or podcasts to learn from. The only way you could have learned these languages is by actually living in all of these different countries for a very long time to then pick up the language and learning how to speak it over some time. And that would have taken years, decades, maybe even a lifetime to learn to over 20 languages here. And the miracle is that in a moment, without ever having traveled or studied to any of, in any of these places, they spoke these languages fluently. In a moment. One moment, they didn't know the, any languages. They only knew uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. And the next minute, they know all of these languages. And they're communicating to one another and to the people. Uh, and, and it's verifiable. The crowds saw this and they witnessed this and they knew them and they heard that they were speaking fluently in multiple languages effortlessly. And it says they were all amazed and perplexed. It is if we witness these first three miracles, the sound of the wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking in tongues, that would have been enough to astound us. But there's a fourth miracle, which is the chief miracle. And the Bible says that there was a massive crowd of people who gathered around. 
we know that a very high percentage, if not all of those people in that crowd, were the same people in the crowd of Luke chapter 23. And that they were the ones who shouted out to Pilate to crucify Jesus. Remember, Pilate didn't want to. He didn't want to sentence Jesus to death. But Luke chapter 23, verse 23 says, But they, the crowd, the same people, were insistent, demanding with loud cries for Jesus to be crucified, and their voices prevailed. This crowd released Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a murderer. And they cried out for Jesus, who was innocent and sinless, to be bitterly beaten and flogged and whipped and tortured and crucified to death. These are the people that Peter is preaching to in Acts chapter 2. And it's, a, it's an amazing sermon. Uh, it's a little short for my taste. Uh, but he preaches a summary of all the scriptures and the life of Christ. And the last line of the sermon is this. So he gets through all of this, and then he gets to the last line, and he says this. Let all the house of Israel, that is all of you in this crowd, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The text says that when the crowds heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. Some translation says uh, they, they were moved in the heart or they were cut to the heart. That, that's weak. That's not what it says. It's more forceful. It says they were stabbed in the heart, impaled in the heart. They were pierced in the soul. And then they said this, brothers, what shall we do? Now, they're not asking, okay, all right, we made a big mistake. Okay, now tell me what I got to do to clean it up. Let me, uh, let me fix it. This is the, the cry of despair, of somebody saying, well, well, now what? We killed him. And now what? Now, we're guilty. His, we cried out for his blood. And now there's nothing we can do about it. We can't undo that. He's, he's not even here now. We can't even see him. So it's, it's a rhetorical question. They're saying we can't take it back. This is a cry of despair. Uh, this is the moment, the very moment when you hear these words. Um, what then shall we do? What can we do? There's nothing we can do is what they're saying. This is the moment they realize they sinned against not just a man, but against God Almighty. And they felt their guilt and they realized there's nothing they could do about it. And Peter says then after this, one of the most beautiful things ever, in the midst of their hopelessness and their their despair, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Peter, in other words, is saying, you guys can't fix this. What you did, you can't undo. The sin you made, the sin you committed is there and you can't fix it. Only God can and he will. And then he says this, uh, if if you catch his words, he says um, uh, that it is for the forgiveness of your sins. What was their sin? They were the very ones who cried out and condemned Christ. 
And Peter says, yes, you crucified him. But it was the Lord's plan by, that by the very means of his crucifixion, he would forgive you for condemning him to crucifixion. You condemning him to death is the very means he uses to give you life and take away the very sin that drove him to the cross. And I want you to notice this. Peter didn't use some catchy sermon illustration or an object lesson or a cool program or method or a style of music or worship experience to get this to them. It was a plain and ordinary sermon. It was just words. It was the simple preaching of the word in a language that they could understand. That's all Peter had and that's all he needed. Remember, uh, later on in Acts, uh, they they go up to him and he says, "Uh, silver and gold I have not, but what I do have is the word of God. And this I'll give you. And then the text says, Those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread. Now, this is the fourth and the chief miracle of Pentecost, which is faith. It's that God, the Holy Spirit, converted their hearts. It's not that they had a special feeling that day or that they reformed their life in that moment and made up for all their wicked deeds. It's that the Holy Spirit turned away Uh, turned these people away from trusting their own righteousness and trusting only in the righteousness of Christ. The same hearts that once rejected Jesus now trusted in Jesus. Over 3,000 people, it says, that that very day. One is impressive enough, but over 3,000 in a moment. The same mouths that cried out to, to crucify Jesus and make him bleed are the same mouths that open up and receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Over 3,000 stubborn and angry and hard-hearted and guilty and violent and impenitent hearts were changed that day. And they were given true faith in Jesus. And the same Holy Spirit who converted their hearts the hearts of those who murdered him is the same one who has converted yours. If you're here today, if you're joining the church, if you're being confirmed in the faith today, if you believe and rely upon the fact that Jesus purchased and won you not with gold or silver, but by his holy and precious blood, then it is not because you did it yourself. You did not come to the church by yourself. You did not come to faith by yourself. You are not here because of your own reason or strength or because you chose to believe in Jesus. You are here only because the Holy Spirit has called you by his holy gospel and enlightened you with his gifts. And the reason I'm saying this and emphasizing this is because there are some pastors and churches who will tell you otherwise. They will say that faith is your work, that you have to cooperate in your conversion, that your baptism, your baptism, when you were baptized as, a, as an infant, all of you, they would say that your baptism isn't enough and that you have to add something to it, that you need to be rebaptized for it to be sincere and true, that you have to pray the sinner's prayer, you have to have a genuine conversion experience and an altar call, you have to feel God in your heart. They're gonna tell you all these things, but they are wrong. They are wrong because Peter himself says, 
Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Faith is not a work of man. And I'm not saying this because it's just nice to believe. I'm saying it, it's because what the Bible says. Faith is a gift of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man cannot accept the things of God. The only way that anyone can come to faith or believe in Jesus is through, uh, through the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1.29 says, Unto you it has been granted, given, that for the sake of Christ you would not only believe in him, but suffer for him. John 6, 29 says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And John 15 says, You did not choose me, I chose you. We don't cause or contribute to our conversion. We're passive in it. Um, just like a baby doesn't cause his own birth or life. You have faith not because you willed it, but because God did. He caused you to believe. He converted your heart all on his own, and neither you nor I helped him. He alone is the author and perfecter of our faith. The beginning and the sustaining and completion of faith doesn't depend on you entirely or in half or in part, not even in the slightest or least or most inconsiderable part. The beginning, continuation, and finishing of your faith depends on the Holy Spirit. And I want you to take that to heart. Because before I close... <clears throat> I don't want to end the sermon without telling you that there is a reason I have emphasized this so much and I've gone on so long about this. First is because it is true. It is what the Bible says. But the second thing is this, and this is important for everyone to hear, all of you who are here today. But most especially, it is important for you, for confirmants, Aiden, Ava, Eduarda, and Molly. And I'm telling you this because you're old enough to understand it now. And I'm telling you for your comfort to keep you from falling away. The days are coming, or maybe are already here, when you will fail, and you will fall, and sin terribly, very terribly against the God who made you. The days are coming when you will be tempted to do very sinful things that may seem good and enjoyable in the moment, but you will realize only lead to heartache and pain. And the days are coming when you will be pressured by friends and family in this world to give up the gospel, to do and believe and say shameful things. A time is coming when you yourself will know the depth of your own sin will feel it, will feel a crushing weight of guilt in your heart. And when you will make a mess that you cannot clean up and you will break something that you cannot fix and you will feel hopeless and feel like God is angry with you and that he will never take you back. And when that day comes, I want you to remember your baptism. I want you to remember how much Jesus loved you before you took a breath and how he poured out every drop of blood in his heart to wash away your sins.
When you feel the crushing weight of the law and feel like you are not good enough for God, I want you to remember that Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to remember that the same Jesus who forgave those 3,000 people for murdering him on a cross is the same Jesus who will forgive you again and again and again and cover your sins forever. I'm telling you this because Christians oftentimes think that they have to get their life in order before coming back to church. They think that they have to clean up their mess and fix what they've done and then make a clean record, fix everything, and then come back to church when they've achieved something. And they stay away from church and then they'll say something like, I'll go back when I feel ready. I'll go back when I'm ready. And they never do. And weeks and months and years go by and they are lost forever. They lose faith and eternal life. Don't do that. Listen to me. Don't you ever do that. When those things happen, you come straight to church and you go exactly to where Jesus promised to be for you, where he promised to forgive all of your sins and you confess your sins, you repent, you receive the absolution from God himself, the free and full forgiveness of all of your sins through the wounds of Christ who loves you. Don't wait ever to feel ready to come to church or wait to feel like coming to church before coming to church. In fact, when you don't feel like coming to church, take that as a sign that you should come to church all the more. That it's more important to come, especially in those moments. Come to church, especially when you don't want to come to church, because this is the place where Jesus is for you, where he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So you come to church while your heart is still broken. And you come to church when it's still stubborn and hardened, like a rock. And God will give you a new heart. He will create a new heart in you. And when you do something you can't undo, or say something you can't take back, or fail at what you should have done, Come to church and hear that Jesus has already done what needs to be done. He has already opened up his flesh and poured out his perfect blood for you. So dear saints, and especially dear Aiden and Ava and Eduarda and Molly, you've learned a lot and you've done great work. And we're going to celebrate all of the work that you've done. And I'm proud of each one of you here today. In fact, the whole congregation is. But I want to remind you that even though you've taken all these exams and memorized the entire catechism, answered it word for word, answered all these questions, and you're about to be confirmed, you have not finished anything. In fact, you're only starting. You're only starting to learn how much God has loved you and how much he forgives you. So don't put away the catechism. Don't put away your Bible or the hymnal because you've only just begun. Most notably, you're starting for the very first time to receive the body and blood of Christ. The time has come when I, as your pastor, can no longer in good conscience withhold the Lord's Supper from you. The time has come when uh, I I can't, when when you know too much, you know what it is, you know that it's for you. 
And so, as you come for today, know that it is for you. Take and eat and drink. This is for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Dear saints, may God bless you all this day and may strengthen your faith and keep you into life everlasting. Amen. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We stand to sing the offertory.